Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast. My name is Peter Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan University. I'm joined by my MMU colleague, Jeremy Craddock. Hello, Jez. Hi, Pete. And we're into double figures this week, episode 10 of the podcast. And we did have plans to look at some more issues in court reporting, but then... This happened. I think what's fascinating is the numbers rather than. Rachel, I'm going to interrupt you. I'm so sorry. We've just heard the news that uh, the Brexit Secretary, Dominic Raab, has resigned. Just to repeat, the Brexit Secretary, Dominic Raab, has just resigned from the Cabinet, saying that he cannot support what he calls an indefinite backstop arrangement. Your reaction to that, Rachel Sylvester? Gosh, well, that's huge, isn't it? That means that this thing really is dead in the water, I'd say, that she can't... I don't see how she can now get this through the Commons if the man who is supposed to be in charge of negotiating it can't even back it. So just like some are predicting will happen to the draft Brexit agreement, we've had to junk today's plans to look at Brexit and whether reporting on everything since the 2016 referendum to yesterday's 580-page exit document has illuminated the issues or obscured them. We'll be speaking to a number of our own journalism students for their take on that, and in a moment we hear from one of MMU's most in-demand experts on Brexit. But first... Let's go back over some of the events of the day. We're recording this, Jez, and keeping an eye on... Tell us what's, what, happening. What, yeah. what's happening in Downing Street, isn't there? Yeah, exactly. There's n- nothing happening at the moment. But we're just waiting, I think, for Theresa May to uh, to come so, out. And yeah, we're just a wee bit after five o'clock at the minute, and we're, we're looking at the, the live feed from Downing Street because Theresa May is going to hold a press conference, and there's a lot of discussion about whether, whether she's going to announce some kind of reshuffle, who's yes. going to be in it. yes. All we're, all, we're all hanging on the, on the edge of our seats, aren't we? Yeah, so um, let's, let's go back over some of the events of the day, because as earlier on today, just as government ministers seem to be falling like skittles, um, Theresa May faced a hostile House of Commons, trying to persuade MPs to back her deal. I do not pretend that this has been a comfortable process, <laughs> or, or that either we or the EU are entirely happy with all of the arrangements that have been included within it. But of course this is the case. This is an arrangement that we have both said we never want to have to use. But while some people might pretend otherwise, there is no deal which delivers the Brexit the British people voted for which does not involve this insurance policy. The Prime Minister in the House of Commons there, but the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, was hearing none of that. The government, Mr Speaker, is in chaos. Their deal risked leaving the country in an indefinite halfway house without a real say. So, Jez, the the politics have been kind of chaotic. It's one of those days that you almost live for as a journalist, isn't it? It is. It's almost like today is is the payoff for the months and months of you know, if we're being honest, fairly dull uh, developments with Brexit. And I'm sure lots of people have lost interest a little bit along the way um, and it's been hard to follow lots of it. But it's almost coming, being crystallised a bit now. And a lot of the things that people have been expecting are starting to happen. So Theresa May's leadership being challenged, you know, potentially. Um, her, her, the deal that she's brokering is coming into question, is being doubted now. So, yeah, so it feels like it, things are coming together a little bit now. Yeah, yeah, coming together or, or coming yeah, or apart. Coming apart. Really, yeah, maybe a better phrase. Whichever yeah. you prefer. But yeah. we'll come back to the politics of all this in a moment. But first, we wanted to get some clarity over just what's in that deal 
580 pages of it. <laughs> Some of us have read it, although yeah. although I, I just noticed that uh, Nigel Farage said that he hasn't read it. So right, if he's okay. not read those 580 pages, who, who has? I have read a little bit of it. But yeah. for someone who might know about this, I wanted to, to see how we got from here from here from June 2016 and why is that naughty Northern Ireland border issue such a complicated one so I went to see Catherine Simpson she's associate professor in political economy here at MMU she's written extensively on all of this so I asked her why the border has become such a burden for the negotiators I think really what it, it goes down to is perhaps a, a general lack of understanding among the public about about Northern Ireland uh, as as a part of the UK uh, the sensitivities around the polit- uh, politics of Northern Ireland you know the general election last year the big question was who are the DUP uh, and the Democratic Unionist Party is one of the largest and and longest standing political parties uh, in Northern Ireland. Uh, But again, kind of the difference between the DUP, for example, a a strong unionist party that want to stay in the union with the United Kingdom uh, in comparison then to the second largest party of Sinn Féin, uh, who, again, second largest party, want to stay uh, with kind of align more to uh, the Republic of Ireland. So there's that kind of 50-50 split in Northern Ireland. Then you compact that then with all the political sensitivities that we have seen around Westminster in the last year and the difficulty between the arithmetic in, in Westminster and Parliament and, uh, and then negotiating the deal. It's really, really complex. And again, you know, the vast majority of people living in perhaps in England and Scotland and Wales might not have even been to Northern Ireland, might not have even seen this border. Uh, and again, it's really difficult to get your head around when you're maybe not used to it. It's something that's over there. And again, it's something that we're not, we don't really talk about that much uh, in general kind of public discourse or, or classes or schools. Uh, I have been astounded by some of the things that I have had to explain that I would consider to be general public knowledge to, to students. Um, and again, I think there's a real lack of understanding about how Northern Ireland, uh, as part of Great Britain, actually works in practice. Does that go back partly to the referendum itself, to the, the, the campaign in 2016? Because I remember the, the Scottish independence referendum two years before that, where the, the, the level of public discourse was, was a lot higher and so public understanding of a lot of this stuff was better, I think, looking back on it. it, it does it go back to 2016 or is there something else involved in that lack of understanding of why people are so confused about it now? I think it's twofold. I think there's a general lack of understanding in the UK about how the EU works, number one. And there has re- that is kind of really going back to when the UK joined the European mm. Union in that first wave of enlargement in 1973 with Ireland uh, and Denmark. And there's been a real strong kind of lack of psychological commitment to the EU project as well on part of the UK. The UK is often considered to be an awkward partner uh, in a lot of kind of you know, its stance towards the EU. Then when you kind of really go back then to the 2016 EU referendum, one of the things that always struck me about the referendum and the official campaign, but also in the lead up to the referendum, was how England-centric the debate was. It was very focused around kind of Englishness uh, and that kind of Eurosceptic debate that was in England, uh, rather than actually branching it out further and saying, right, well, how would this impact Scotland? How would it impact Wales? How would it impact Northern Ireland? And the devolved administrations, all three, featured very, very little uh, in the discourse and the referendum campaign, uh, in the official campaign, but also in the lead up. And really then when the result came through, it kind of hammered home how difficult this was going to be, given the kind of variation in the constituent parts of the United Kingdom going forward. Going forward, and um, 
one of my former colleagues, Chris Mason at the BBC, the kind of expert on, on Brexit and stuff, the other day said he didn't have a scooby what was going to happen. So I'll, I'll excuse you if you say the same thing. But what happens next? I mean, what do you think will happen to not the politics of all of this, I guess, but the kind of negotiations? Because it, it looks like this agreement might either end up in the bin or at least be renegotiated in some serious way. Yeah, it's it's really quite difficult to know what what will happen going going forward. Um, in some respects, the withdrawal agreement has been delivered on the part of the EU and the UK. Really, the Cabinet has, despite the resignations we have seen so far, uh, has approved it. The next big hurdle is getting that withdrawal agreement, which is now um, a kind of a, a legal text through uh, the House of Commons and through Parliament. If that doesn't get through, uh, the UK government then has up to 21 days to uh, provide an alternative solution to the withdrawal agreement. And I think if it doesn't get through Parliament, there are four options. I think the first option is for the UK to leave the European Union without a deal. I think the second option then is a renegotiation with the European Union and an extension of Article 50. I think the third thing then is a potential general election. Uh, based on what we may see over the coming days uh, of a vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister and the complexities around that. And then fourthly, perhaps, uh, a second EU referendum. So I think they're the options. If you go to the other side and the withdrawal agreement goes through the House of Commons and there's no issue and it gets rubber stamped, uh, it will then be sent to the European Union and it will be signed off by the European Parliament. And then it will be signed off by the EU 27 member states. And we have to have 20 EU member states, which represents 60% of the uh, population of the European Union to approve it. And then it's it. Then we leave on the 29th of March with that withdrawal agreement. So there are two kind of... And then the trade negotiations start. And really, that's when, I mean, this has been the relatively easy part. Uh, and it's been very, very difficult. The easy part also was getting that withdrawal agreement rubber stamped in Cabinet last night, and it still took five hours. The real difficulty uh, is getting it through the House of Commons. But the the real, real difficulty in negotiations is establishing a future trade relationship with the EU. Uh, and that will start kind of in April 2019. And that is when uh, it will be the most difficult. And it's actually one of the areas that is most underdeveloped in the draft withdrawal agreement we see at the moment. There is very little on what that future trade relationship will look like. Uh, so this is far from over, even when the UK leaves with a deal or not on the 29th of March 2019. OK, well, I'm not going to ask you to pick one of those four. We'll leave it at that. Catherine, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. So Catherine Simpson at Department of Economics, Policy and International Business here at MMU. And a reminder that you're listening to Bang to Rights from Manchester Metropolitan University's Journalism Unit. And if you have a view on that, please let us know on Twitter at RightsBang. But Jez, we wanted to keep the focus of the podcast on journalism. So as ministers were falling out of office around us, I asked a group of our journalism students whether they thought coverage of Brexit had helped or hindered public understanding. To get this discussion going, I'm, I'm with um, a small group of the MA students um, and uh, we're taking a break from, from the media law class to, uh, to have a quick look at this. I'm going to go around everybody and just get everybody's names first of all before we start. So who have we got? I'm Sean. I'm Danielle. I'm Dan. I'm Alex. Okay, so Sean, you've had a look at this in, in quite a lot of detail in, in a previous life, haven't you? 
Yeah, so four years ago, pre the referendum, I did my dissertation about British Euroscepticism and its effect on EU integration. And one of the main findings that I had was that the general public didn't understand, you know, what the EU was, what our relationship with them was and what, you know, our the laws were. Uh, and I think that's still true. I don't think that people will have really gone out there and educated themselves on, on that and what the actual, you know, dealings of Brexit are now. I'm going to come back to you on that in a second and see whether you think things have changed. But, Danielle, the, is, it, is it kind of partisan coverage, do you think, that puts people off and is kind of obscuring views of what, of what of, you know, obscuring understanding of, of the issue? I just think the thing that's putting people off is the fact that they don't understand what's going on. I think they see, you know, the people in charge faltering and not really having a clue what's going on, you know, what they want from the deal. And so they just kind of disengage and switch off. And Dana, if we come to you, broadcasters are meant to be impartial, aren't they? They're kind of regulated so that they don't take sides in politics. But are they as, are they as guilty as some of the newspapers, do you think? Um, I, I don't know if the, the broadcasters are being necessarily um, not being impartial, but they're definitely not um, appealing to their whole audience when it comes to Brexit. So now only the people that now know about Brexit are kind of following it. You can't really get, get into it now that it's because of all this Brexit jargon. No one knows what checkers is. No one knows what no deal means. No one knows what deal means. So it's really difficult for people to engage with it anymore. There's a kind of something in the back of my mind has always been, well, if people don't understand it, they ought, should, ought to try and find out about it because it's such a big, big deal. It, it, what's, what's your attitude on that, Alex? Well, yeah, a few, a few years ago it was... Um no one really knew anything about the European Union. I knew nothing about it. Now we have a bit of a like information overload on it, getting a whole lot of uh, different sides for it. But I think the only way to actually do it is to um, approach it as you would any other subject with uh, many sides. One, uh, one from the right, one from the left, and then one more to be uh, sure, where you can actually pick out what the opinions and what the facts. And that's probably the only way to understand the European Union. Um, the Brexit, the movie, even though that was a right-wing source, uh, that was actually quite close closely accurate actually um at least gave you quite a good understanding of uh the european union especially the uh debates between uh, farage and clegg that uh that was actually the first thing that got me into um trying to understand that that was a good base to start with however why is they should be asking why is it so confusing if it's so important what did you find when you had a look at this shan four years ago so it was this is pre-referendum but it's it, it was very much in the air so people might have been confused by it but it was important is that is that sort of thing is that what you found then um what i found was that generally younger more educated people cared more and knew more um people that didn't really know much they didn't really want to know much but then I think, again, when we talk about people should educate themselves, I think people will take things that they hear on the news as face value. So they'll hear politicians talking about it, and that might not be actually be true. People don't actually go and, you know, look on the European Union website and, like, find out all the stats and find out what laws that we're signed up to and what our, you know, trade agreements and things are. So Now that we're kind of getting down to, to crunch time, Danielle, it looks like things really are going to come to, uh, we're, we're kind of at a moment of transition really, a sort of fork in the road, I think one politician put it. Do you think, uh, are, do you expect that coverage might improve now? Um, 
to be honest, I hope so, because now we kind of know what's happening. I think they should be able to compile, you know, like information together in a more effective way. And hopefully people are going to be coming out, you know, saying this is happening, you know, this is certain, rather than before the coverage was quite difficult because it was all up in the air and we didn't really have a clue. So as of today, hopefully we'll be able to get more information on what's actually happening and how it will affect us so that's that's the view of some of our students jez mm-hmm. and I, I we we had quite a lengthy discussion actually in the, in the break between lectures there early this morning um what's i mean what do you think actually has has reporting since 2016 has reporting of this kind of helped public understanding or confuse um, people I, I think probably a bit of both really um some of it i think i think Certainly, from my own point of view, you know, I mean, it, it, is, it is very complex, and I've struggled to get my head around it, and, and lost interest in certain parts of it. I found quite uh, recently a lot of the reporting has been more focused, and I've got a better gr- uh, grasp on things, particularly things like the the Northern Ireland backstop and that sort of thing. Um, certainly, in print, which is my, my background, um, some some really good explanatory pieces. And also um, some broadcasts as well. And I noticed um, Chris Mason of the BBC, um, Mm. he did a piece this week where he talked about how complicated it it is and how he personally hasn't got a foggiest of what's going on. He said he might as well get Mr Blobby on to try and explain (laughs) it. And I, I think that probably reflects the feeling of a lot of people. Um, but certainly the, the, the best coverage I've spotted, in certainly in print, has been where people have related um, how Brexit will affect specific areas, like, you know, how it will affect businesses, um, you know, uh, uh, Brits who are living abroad, that sort of thing, you know. And it's kind of relating it to real real situations. To, to real, real situations yeah, and real life and yeah, everything. Yeah, yes. yeah. I mean, do you think, we, we were talking to the students about this, as you heard, do you think the, there's the, the kind of partisanship in, in mm. newspaper coverage is mm. one of the things that kind of clouds people's understanding because a lot of newspapers, the Daily Mail is a case in mm. point, although they've softened recently under the new editor, but th- that's that's been either a turn-off or it's only giving people one side of the story. I think so, and I, I think um, certain partisan reporting is probably f- fed into a lot of people's preconceived ideas and just, just you know, strengthened um, arguments on either side, whether you're pro-leave, pro-remain. Um, so it hasn't necessarily helped that, I think. So to get a good pitch, you've got to go somewhere in the middle, haven't you, really? Yeah, because, of course, the broadcasters have been accused, at any rate, by mm. some people of, of trying to take that middle ground. I mean, the BBC yeah. particularly has come in for quite a lot of flack yes, for, yes. for doing this kind of he said, she said mm. sort of thing without kind of making a judgment about whether what he said is yeah. true yes. and what she said is, is also true or whatever. Yes. And that... I mean, Nick Robinson, for example, from the Today programme, he, he's written quite a lot about this because he, you know, when in his previous life as a political editor. Yes. And he now says he kind of regrets not having made those judgments mm. and evaluated whether something was true before he reported on it. And, yes. of course, in the heat of an election campaign or a referendum campaign, it's kind of incumbent on you as a national broadcaster just to report right across the yes. spectrum and to be fair to everybody. Absolutely, and, and brings us... Obviously, to Ofcom's uh, yeah. code, which which we've been we've been looking at in law and ethics with the yeah. uh, level sixes this week. So, yeah. again, that's sort of an interesting point for our students to pick up on, really. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think the public has a, a perception that that uh, broadcasters sh- 
should be partisan, really. In I the suppose way they have that are. statutory requirement mm. to, to, to not to be partisan yes. in the way that the newspapers are yeah. allowed to be. And yet, the, on the other side, you then also get people accusing the BBC of being biased anyway. And, uh, you know, um, so it's almost like you can't win either way, really. Yeah, I think the, one of the things that I guess we is is becoming more common is that the BBC are becoming the the target for an awful lot of of this and uh, yes. that that's partly because they're publicly funded yes. and because they they are still the organization I was looking at some figures that the other day from from Ofcom in fact mm. they're still the organization that's preeminently streets ahead mm. of everybody else in terms of public trust yes absolutely yeah and we had the case didn't we recently of Laura Coonsberg coming for quite a lot of flack um, on social media, but she, you know, she's been straight down the line in the way she she covers things, and uh, so yeah, it's interesting to see um, the BBC standing in that respect. Yeah, and so we're we're kind of at a, we're at an interesting crossroads in some ways because we've had all this lead up over the last two years of, of all mm. the, the negotiations and such. Like, well, not two years since Article Fifty was triggered. Um, uh, and uh, and now we're in the midst of this political turmoil, and, yeah. and Lord knows where it's gone. And actually, our feed from uh, Downing Street's <laughs> dropped off in any case, so I'm not quite sure what Theresa May is going but to be saying. But um, this is one question I asked Catherine um, a mm. moment ago. Where where do you think we go now? What happens next? Well, and don't it, give me the Chris Mason thing about I haven't a Scooby. Well, it, it's been fascinating today in between d trying to do everything else, just yeah. trying to keep track. Yeah, because we have been trying to, we have been lecturing in between times and, and teaching. Work, we're yeah. trying to keep one eye on, on, on what's been happening. It's very hard to predict, isn't it? And you, you know, there's so many elements up in the air, you know, Theresa May's leadership, you know, who, who's going to potentially be a, a challenger to that. Are we going to be facing a general election? You know, I, I read some suggestions that you know, some uh, pro-Brexit um, MPs, uh, Conservative MPs might might want to push for a second referendum, yeah. you yeah. know, so I think it, it's fascinating to see what's going to happen. And it's starting to feel, you know, with the resignations, starting to feel a bit like a Shakespearean political play, you know, yeah. Julius, Julius yeah. Caesar or something, isn't it, you know, yeah. what a skullduggery. I mean, I suppose one thing that we can be certain about is, and this has happened during political crises before, is that readership of newspapers is going to go up as a result of yes. this and people watching telly and watching the radio news and so on is going to go up yeah absolutely it's it is interesting that it's we're, we're fascinated today because the human story is coming through isn't it? In, yeah. in, in political terms i think people are less interested in the the document you know the document that's been produced and that dry aspect of it but as soon as there's a bit of political intrigue people are fascinated by it and i think that's what we as journalists need to tap into and it's it's one way of explaining a complex story like brexit you know if we're going to try and win the audience yeah um i think you and i could sit here and talk yeah. about this all night <laughs> but we should probably wrap it up at that point but just before we do the usual kind of uh, roundup of what what the students can expect in the coming week or so in, in lectures yeah uh level five second years we're moving on to copyright next week we just finished defamation and the level six is law and ethics. I believe we are continuing with, with the Ofcom code. 
And with the postgrads, I'm going to be looking at the youth courts. And actually, that's going to be the subject of next week's podcast as well. We're going to be looking at young people in the criminal justice system with one of the specialists at the MMU Law School, as well as hearing from Charlotte Irwin at IPSO, the press regulator. She's just written their new guidance on reporting sexual offences. So do listen out for that. We are Bang to Rights. Do subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It means Bang to Rights just pops up on your podcast feed as if by magic. You'll also find us on Stitcher, or you can search for Bang to Rights on the MMU Northern Quota SoundCloud feed. That's all one word, MMU Northern Quota. And please, if you've got time, give us a rating. Helps spread the word and helps other people find us. So that's it for this week. Thanks very much, Jez. Thanks, Pete. And remember, you can tweet at us at RightsBang and let us know if there are topics or issues from lectures or from your reading which you want us to cover in future editions. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.